I just want to say from the start, thank you so much for not only speaking to me, but speaking to everyone. It's it feels like who reaches out to you to talk about Prince. Um, you know, you're so generous and kind with your time. And it's a great example to follow, I think, for all of us who come after this legacy of music and just all of us in general. It's a model to follow because you recognize what that contribution meant for you specifically and how it was part of such a greater collective. Prince is someone who has affected the both of us, albeit in extremely different ways, yet there's still that mutual connection, which is something very special, you know? Yeah, I'm so fortunate to have been in his company to have spent that much time with him, to have been of service to him. I never lost sight of that every day when I was working for him. And since, um, since his passing uh, the whole time, you know, it, it, it's um, the, the, the reason I like to contribute to the conversation of who the man was is because he was so complex and so unusual of an individual that any one person saying, oh, you know, I knew him and it was, he was like this and that can't even begin to describe who this man was. So mm. I think that what we, those of us who knew him, should do for his for his legacy, for history, for his fans, we should all talk about him. And the more of us who represent the different eras and the different facets of his life talk mm. about him, the more of us who talk about him, uh, that's my McGill training there, <laughs> make sure speak as you would write, but the more <laughs> of us who talk about him, the more complete of a picture will emerge and that's that's the best thing we can do for him, I think, is tell the truth, mm. talk about who he was. And even then, do you think that you would have be able to piece together a complete picture of his life, his music, who he was? Good question. And I don't think I've been asked that question before, but it's a really good one because what makes up a human being is so dependent on their motives and drives, what they want. It's dependent on their self-image. And we can look at their outer image and we can look at their outer actions and we can say, oh, I know what you want or I know how you think about yourself or I know who you are. We don't. Um, I wish that Prince had been more forthcoming, especially in his youth, about giving interviews and things like that. Maybe we'd have a more complete picture, but ultimately I believe he said it in, in an interview, he's the only one who knows himself. Mm -hmm. And that's true for all of us. We're the only ones who truly know ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we either go on the mic and we try to fill in those details, discussing who it is we want to be, what we'd like to have happen in this world. But if we don't, then those of us who are curious are going to have to be okay with recognizing it's going to have to remain a mystery. Mm. We'll never know Prince, truly mm. know him. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we can make guesses and it's fun to make guesses and it ultimately doesn't matter how accurate or how closely we get to the absolute truth. One of the things that really intrigues me with Prince, as I do research, especially into his younger um, his younger years, is that it seemed it seemed like he had a really strong sense of what his 
for lack of a better word, what his value was as hmm. a creative being. Because when you look at how he kind of, he really stood up for himself unapologetically hmm. as a 18 year old, standing up for himself and his creative freedom and his ownership to Warner Brothers. And, you know, I can't imagine within his own personal relationships and putting his band together and putting a team, et cetera. It just fascinates me that that inner knowing that I think we all ideally would have with regards to ourselves. Yeah. But many of us, you know, it, it takes a lifetime to figure that out. He had yeah. it at such a young age. That's an interesting question. I think it concerns metaphorically speaking, your sense of how much gas you've got in the tank. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're young, you're about to embark on this journey of life. And I firmly believe that children know who they are. Down mm -hmm. deep inside, I think children know who they are. I felt like I did. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it leads me to believe that Prince knew who he was. Now, there are people who are under the belief that they've got that full tank of gas and that they're going to be huge superstars in the music business. And then when it doesn't happen, they usually tend to blame outside forces. And they say, well, it's just because, you know, I could have gotten there, but this didn't happen or that didn't happen. I've never seen that those excuses actually have any valid reason for holding up. So I think mm. Prince was one of those people who knew he was holding to use another metaphor, he knew he had a full tank of gas. He knew he had a powerful creative engine under the hood. He mm -hmm. knew he had the self-discipline to get mm -hmm. there. He knew that he had the focus. He knew that he was willing to make the sacrifices. And uh, that knowing helped his decision-making when he was very, very young. He was able to say yes to every opportunity without looking back. Because mm -hmm. I teach at Berkeley College of Music and I teach young music business aspirants, you know, people who want to be artists or producers in some capacity. I meet a lot of young people and I hear them talk about what they want and I hear them do that analysis of what skills they believe they're holding, what talents, what, what they think they have to contribute. Mm. And, um, not that many, not a very high percentage of them, I think, really understand, really understand where they fit in the hierarchy or what, what their potential is, I should say. There are a few, there are a few. And those are the ones who tend to do really well. Hmm. Are you saying some have somewhat of an inflated idea of where they can go given? Some do. Yeah. yeah, and the ones who have an overly inflated idea of their abilities are the ones who will not. I mean, I just know from experience, 45 years in the music business, they're not going to go far. Mm. There are others who have the opposite. They uh, don't have enough confidence. They, they just don't have enough belief in their abilities, and they're not going to go far either because mm -hmm. they're, um, they're not going to be able to make the sacrifices and shall I say even have the courage to say yes to certain opportunities when they present themselves they just and perhaps they just don't want it badly enough mm -hmm. but there are some in the middle who uh, have uh, the clear heads and know that yeah I might not have all the gas right now but there's a filling station a year or two down the road 
I'll pull off there and I'll refuel if I need to. In other words, they know I'm in this for the long haul and let me just see how far I'm gonna get. Uh, Prince was one, I believe, who knew he was in for the long haul and also knew he wouldn't have to pull off the road for fuel because he was carrying so much. Now, for me and, and for others like me who um, were m mere mortals, unlike Prince, <laughs> we got into the business and uh, just had enough gas always in the tank to keep going and to make forward progress and to 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 actually achieve things in the music business. But um, it is tough. Mm. Um, do you think that given your own experience in research and in teaching and in life and working uh, as a record producer, where does talent fall on that scale as to determining how far you will yeah. go? Is it the talent itself mm. the or the devotion to investing in your talent and getting better? The concept of talent is still being understood, at least by psychologists. We used to say things, pithy things like, oh, he was born with it. Oh, it's a natural gift. We now know that's not quite true, although there's some mm -hmm. truth to it. We now know that talent is the product of uh, a lot of cognitive and personality traits, plus circumstances they have to be where um, your talent can be expressed. So uh, mm. talent involves the focus, the self-discipline to practice, practice, practice monomaniacally, which mm. Prince had no problem doing. Uh, the stories are legendary about how much time he would spend practicing when he was young. I can attest firsthand at how much time he spent playing and practicing in rehearsal when I knew him in the 80s. Yeah. So there's these qualities of focus and self-discipline. It helps to have a, um, a high IQ, which he undoubtedly had. Mm. Uh, it, it helps to be smart, um, and it helps to uh, it helps to be ambitious because some people have uh, have uh, are great, greatly creative, but they don't have the ambition to hold it together and mm. actually create things. Um, so. Yeah, he had he had all of those features and all of those things fall under the umbrella of what we label talent, but it's it's more than just one quality. Mm. Okay, so while we're talking about this, you said something a couple minutes ago uh, that you wish Prince had done more interviews when he was younger. Mm. I also know from listening to a lot of interviews that you've given, and it's it's corroborated over and over again, that Prince was actually a, a very shy, in, perhaps introverted person. I'm assuming introverted, but shy, yeah. I know. And that being so creative and being so, his mind being so active with constant ideas and wanting to just constantly be in the studio and record and create, that somebody who is like that needs to have a certain protective force field around them <laughs> in order for their creativity to be able to incubate as much as they needed to incubate yeah. and also maybe filter out certain outside influences that aren't coming from within. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it requires it. I should say what it is. If you have hyper creativity and you have the wherewithal to be in the business and actually make things, 
then you almost have to set yourself up on a foreign planet. You have to set yourself up in a world that's different from the world that most people occupy. I have a friend named Tim who is a sculptor and he's married to a wonderful woman. They've been together for 40 some odd years. And Tim says, every artist needs someone to keep the world out of his or her way. That's certainly true of the artists that I know. Uh, I talked to Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies uh, the other day and Ed was, uh, I asked him some question about something, some quotidian detail of life and he kind of laughed. He says, I don't know anything about that. My wife handles life. My wife handles all of that. So Prince was unmarried, so what's he going to do? Who's he going to have as a protector to keep the world out of his way? He was not the most trusting person, so it's not like he's going to let any one person, like his manager or his operations manager or a girlfriend or anything like that, handle a lot of these responsibilities. What he's going to do is handle them himself, but put up a, a very thick shield that will only allow certain questions to come to him and uh, will only demand so much of him so that he can keep everything else for himself. What were those things that he was managing? Because again, the world that he built was so vast, like within and of itself, musically, creatively, the live shows, the performances, you know, the acts, the jokes, the costumes, everything. It's so rich. Like even even within his music, the trail of the ideas are evident within the music, like the same repetitive symbols or words, phrases, songs that reference other songs or stories that happened in another song, you know, Um, like the number seven comes up a lot. Um, Soul psychedelicide, uh, you know, now I know Prince didn't record one album and then put it out. Like I know that the music kind of weaves through time. Yeah. Pretty continuous. But still, like it it's, takes a very strong, um, I don't even know about strong, but it's just such a, like how did this man who had so much within him, how is it humanly possible to also be what it seems like a very strong or savvy leader in terms of mm-hmm. leading a team, leading a vision, yet also be able to create, uh, navigate his own world and his own universes, and then even reinvent them over and over again. So hard for me to even imagine what it was like for him to be 24, 25, 26, 27 years old, like in the years when I knew him, be incredibly wealthy, wealthier than anyone he had known prior to that personally. There were no rich people in his world. Mm. Have employees and yet be that artistically productive and creative and have personal relationships, have, mm-hmm. have girlfriends and date and and have, a, have some kind of a, uh, however narrow, some kind of a social life. Uh, how he managed all that, I don't know. I said a moment ago that he wasn't that trusting of a person, and I think that's true. That's a, true of his nature. But he knew that in order to carry out his wishes and his his demands he needed Mm -hmm. to have people around him that he could trust Mm -hmm. um he knew that he needed to be able to tell you i need this done and then walk away and not repeat it not follow up 
trust that you'll get it done. So whether it was Alan Leeds handling his day-to-day -day operations at Paisley Park for many, many years, or Sal Greco, who was chief tech, or it was me, who was his engineer back in the 80s, whether it was his band members, whether it was the people who made clothes for him, or the folks who handled his money, or any of those executive decisions, or executive functions, I should say. He made the decisions, but the functions were carried out. I think he was... Um, smart enough, one, to hire good people who would be loyal to him and would get the job done, and two, uh, to, know, to know when to just tell them what to do and then step away. This is one of the greatest gifts he gave me, if not the greatest gift, is the empowerment and the responsibility uh, to let me act for myself to do the things that he needed done so that his work could continue to progress. Mm. A great confidence builder. Mm. Can you give any examples of when you were feeling that actively with him that, you know, Susan, I know you can handle this. Oh, no, he, he didn't even say, I know you can handle this. He assumed that you knew he knew. And right. that was pretty much every day. So, for right. example, let me just give you, give you an example. You, you could, we could be working on a Sheila E. album or a Time album or even a Prince album. And uh, we're working at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles and um, day in and day out. And he could, the phone could ring in the studio and pick up the phone. He's on the other end of the line and he says, uh, we're going back to Minnesota. Click. And what that means is I pack up all the tapes. I get to Northwestern or Republic Airlines. Those are the ones we used in those days. I get air cargo to get these tapes back as fast as possible. I get myself out of the hotel and get packed up and get home as fast as possible. And by as fast as possible, I mean now, now. Pack it up now. Get to the airport now. Wow. Uh, that, that's just kind of how it was. Uh, or he might say something like, uh, I don't know. He'll, he'll, he'll say, get me, here's an example, uh, get me a Bosendorfer piano. I want a Bosendorfer. I was two years older than him. I don't know anything about Bosendorfer pianos, except that at that time in the 1980s, they were 70 grand. Mm. It's a big purchase. Mm. But it just means get it done. Well, ultimately, he decided against spending that much money on a Bozendorfer. He stuck with his Yamaha. But his uh, the stories are, are, are so long from Robbie Pastor and Sal Greco and, and uh, Alan Leeds and his band members and myself of just him just saying, get this done. And sometimes mm -hmm. you'd, you'd hesitate and you'd say, well, I can do that, but it's going to be really expensive. And he'd always say, what am I, broke? He didn't care. Oh, you'd say, well, it's going to take, you know, a day or two. He didn't yeah. want to hear it. Yeah. He got that information out of him. It belongs to you now. Mm -hmm. You deal with it. Oh, I just want to clarify, too, about that, that trust and that picking of people. Because I got that sense just from knowing how many people he was bringing into the studio, um, that he seemed to be very, like, quick and decisive with with things you know just make a decision on the fly such as mm. i need this piano susan get me this piano or whatever mm. so i always kind of I, I wondered about that and i thought maybe it was part of his spirit that was so um you know like the kind of people who are just like they don't see barriers 
when to, towards something, they just see it as it's possible and why, why can't I? So same thing with trusting people, like why can't, um, you know, why, why can't this person play on my record or why can't this person be part of the team, right? You're, you're here, all right, can you do this? I always thought it was just like an automatic, um, an automatic trust that he gave to people or an automatic, you know, I have confidence in you. But was it more discerned than that? It was more discerning. He wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, I could tell from the, uh, the the staff, folks that we hired, uh, especially the technical crew, the, the road crew, mm-hmm. um, who would come and go. And there were some that he trusted from the drop, right from the beginning. Most mm-hmm. of them he didn't. And he mm-hmm. wouldn't even talk to them directly. He'd give his orders to, to other people. The qualities that certain people had that fostered his trust was a certain kind of meekness and humility. You had to definitely make it clear by your mannerisms and your speech that you recognized he was the boss. As he once even said to a group of us, we were at the warehouse and we're standing around talking and we're talking about one of the crew, one of the road crews who was a real asshole. And anyway, Prince just happened to walk into rehearsal and he walked up to us and we were talking. So as soon as he walked up, we all just got really quiet. And he just says, who's an asshole? We're all really quiet. You know, nobody wanted to rat anyone out. And he says, let me make this clear. There's only mm-hmm. one asshole around here and it's me. Wow. So, <laughs> he was perfectly clear with uh-huh. that was you had to be humble enough to let him lead you had to be trusting enough to to believe that this was gonna, he had his hand on the tiller and that this was going to be okay you did have to be pretty bright uh, you know you had to share some of his qualities you had to be um tenacious and hardworking. you had to have some ambition yourself you mm-hmm. had to have that pride in your work pride like no Mm-hmm. This um, the 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 motto that lasted me my whole career. My personal motto was no jobs too big, no jobs too small. Mm-hmm. I'll do the smallest thing you ask me to do. I'll do the biggest thing you ask me to do. It's a matter of pride for yourself. You you just want to you want to do it. And when he recognized that people uh, certain people had those qualities, those were the ones he put in a position of uh, responsibility. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so kind of turning just into a little bit of a different direction, although on that note of working with him, you've said a number of times that Prince liked working with women mm-hmm. and maybe just for the, for those who will be watching this, um, can you explain a little bit of why do you feel that was, and if you knew that prior to working with him, how did you know that? Oh, I uh, I didn't know that for a fact prior to working with him. There mm. were women in his band, so I suspected as much. Okay. Um, he hired me, so that gave me uh, a hint <laughs> that he wasn't averse to having a woman be his audio technician. He was open to that. Was that an anomaly in that time? Were, were people averse to having female audio technicians yeah it's a it's an anomaly today that's true a a, a big report just came out the fix the mix report 
uh, just came out in April, and it's by the, an organization that I serve on the board of called, called We Are Moving the Needle. And um, it's women in record, in, in technical positions in record making, engineers, producers, mixers. And uh, this report shows the percentage of women in these positions hovers around 1%. And for many genres of music, it's at 0%. Mm. So this is in the year 2023. So mm. yeah, it was to have a, a female technician, there weren't many of us in the world, for one thing, and for another, uh, for a guy to just turn his studio over to a woman. Um, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. It's rare. Uh, he, as I said before, Prince was smarter. <laughs> than That's the right. Guy. So there's, there's one right. of those reasons there. And of course, all the men who hired me and trusted me with their records, um, including Bare Naked Ladies and Gaggy mm -hmm. uh, and Robin Ford and Tricky, and anybody who, who said, yeah, 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 we want you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. I, I, I didn't know what to expect when I went to work for him. I knew that I was a fan. I had all his albums. I had seen him live when he played Los Angeles uh, Dirty Mind tour and uh, 1999 tour. I was such a huge fan. And uh, that worked out really well for him. He liked working with women, I think, for a number of reasons. One is that men are less likely, or rather women are less likely than men to challenge his authority. I saw how... Not the members of the revolution, but I definitely saw how members of the time um, had egos and they had talent and they had brains. And so it was natural for these young men to push back against him. And it, it, it caused a strain uh, for him mentally. It was difficult. I saw some of that. That was difficult. Women were less likely to push that way. Um, women uh, tend to be a little bit more understanding of a collective, of an us, and boy, did he need that in his employees. He needed his employees to just be an us, be an entity mm. that kept the train of his creativity going at the speeds that it went. He was the engine. He was the driver. He was handling all the responsibilities, but we were the one fueling the coal into that into that engine and um he, he he liked that about women we're okay we're a little bit better with an idea of an us that's been shown and um the third thing is boy he had a soft spot in his heart for people who were outliers for mm. people who were odd and didn't quite fit the bill someone you wouldn't expect would serve that role this is why he had wendy and lisa in his band and why i think he was proud proud to have me as his technician and Peggy McCreary out in Los Angeles. He liked working with her because uh, I think he was a little bit of pride that he was giving some outliers uh, opportunities. Hmm. Okay. So um, when it came to working with him as a woman, what were some of those particularities? Well, oh, that's you ask such good questions and questions I haven't been asked before. Thank you. Um, I'll be really candid with you. He, like uh, some of the some, not all, but some of the other men that I've worked with as well, 
was very charismatic and very good looking and very attractive. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, a, a heterosexual woman who was a young woman in those days who never had a damn day off or a date or anything. So being at his side day in and day out required a good deal of um, certain kind of suppression on my part to not, to not cross any kind of line that would make things uncomfortable. It, it required um, a mindset that kept me at my job and kept me serving his, his engineering needs. And I was pretty good about that. I've got the, the mental toughness that allowed me to stay right there in that cage and do my job and not attempt to do anything else. So I, I never attempted to be his friend, or God forbid, I never, uh, <laughs> that would have been laughable, but God forbid, I never flirted or, or did anything like that to draw attention to myself in that way. I'm just that kind of woman who could do that. It might have been uh, more difficult for another woman, but I was uh, I was able to do that. So there, there was a challenge there, but it was a challenge I could meet. Mm. Oof. So there are these rare birds that you will in the music business encounter. And sometimes you'll you'll spend a lot of time with them. Prince was one of the rarest of rare birds. And I spent countless hours with the man over a, a period of years. So yeah, there was a challenge there. But um, Mm. I, I figured it out. I did the the mental equation early in my time with him, uh, solved the equation, and never needed to look at it again. Mm. Mm. Was, did it get easier over time? No. Oh wow. No, he was he was, he was Prince. Yes. I mean, he was, he was <laughs> always got harder. Yeah, he was always impeccably dressed and perfectly mm. groomed, and he always smelled good, and he had makeup mm. on and his skincare. I don't mean like pancake makeup. I mean just a, a little bit, but a little bit of eye makeup. But he his skin was always just glowing. And this is a this is a a big question, or maybe it's not. To me, it's a big question. What was his aura like? Oh, it was pretty great. Another good question. Um, Confidence, command. I don't I don't know people in the military. But I imagine if you're in the military and a general walks in the room, Mm. general has an aura and you know it and everyone is at attention and all eyes are on this person. So your eyes weren't on him because he was rich and famous. I've been in the room with rich and famous people that I really, honestly couldn't care less about. It's not that. It was it was his command and his confidence of that room. But now bear in mind, when I was in a room with him, it was either a recording studio or it was rehearsal. Sometimes it would be a movie set, uh, but we were always working. That was my role. And he was always the boss. Other people who maybe dated him or were, were in his band, they might say something different. But uh, in, in my case, every time he came in the room, you know, he wasn't a very tall fellow, but that hair was up there kind of high and he always wore the high heeled boots. And then there was this aura around him that you perceived to be massive. He filled up the room. He was the brightest light in the room. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
you get right away, you get a sense of how smart he is, mm. what a keen observer he is. You could read his mood right away. Um, when he was in good mood and when he was in a bad mood, he walked slightly differently. And eye contact would be slightly different when he was in a bad mood. He'd kind of avoid eye contact a little bit. When he was in a good mood, he'd look right at you and read your face. But when he was in a bad mood, he wanted to be in his own head. And one of the things I admire about him, he wasn't one of those rock stars who threw temper tantrums or threw things or, or lashed out. He could be, you know, he could get mad, but he wasn't a temper tantrum guy. So most of the time when he was in a bad mood, he just got quiet. It was kind of chilling, and he, he wouldn't want to make eye contact. So you, you just know he, he's in his private head right now, and you would just match him. You'd be quiet. You'd, be, you'd, you'd serve whatever his needs were, which in my case was always routing signal to and from, um, being extremely attentive to him, watching for his commands, which would often be just abrupt and uh, terse. That's when he was in a bad mood or, or when he had a lot on his mind. When he was in a good mood, he was, uh, he, he was very quick to make a joke and, and very funny and uh, jovial. And he, I've said this in interviews before, but he, he was a tease, mm-hmm. like juvenile kind of tease. He'd make fun of something you're wearing or <laughs> something you said or whatever, you know, almost like a little kid uh, who, who was kind of a pest. But that meant he was in a good mood. But that mood could turn if he got a phone call or if something happened, uh, that mood could turn. So, yeah, uh, that's 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 who he was. And I, I wouldn't have expected him to be any different. I've worked with some famous people um, and some people who are on their way to fame. But none of them were quite like that. Hmm. I, I'm thinking of a, a session of a song that he had you erase. Mm-hmm. So I think you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm thinking of that story because I'm curious about any songs that are on like a, a released record that you might that you remember that he recorded in one of those kinds of moods because prince to me um i mean i can just hear it in his music how he really put things and expressed things in his life and and himself into the music like he is his music um mm-hmm. so you know whether it's that that wally story uh which I would love for you to share yeah um and or maybe another one regarding, you know, maybe a song that probably none of us would know has that kind of a energy going into it during the recording. You know, that's um, that's a good question. Um, I wish I could remember specific songs that we recorded when he was in a dark mood. I guess the only one that I that I can say with confidence was uh, ironically Housequake. So yeah, he put himself into his music, but he didn't necessarily put his current self into his music. Prince could uh, do really happy, joyful music while not feeling it, mm. because he was his his craft was so advanced and he was so virtuoso on so many instruments. He knew how happy songs go. 
Mm. If you, uh, if you continuing on my sidebar, if you watch the concert film, Sign of the Times, have you seen that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're on stage and they're doing play in the sunshine. Mm-hmm. He was not happy. That no. whole show. I, I remember that time really well. And, and that, 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 the, those shows and then the weeks immediately afterward when we did post-production back at home, it wasn't a happy time in his life. And yet he's doing play in the sunshine and this happy, arousing music. And you realize that happy, arousing music is not tethered to anything that's personally going on with him right now. Mm-hmm. It's his craft. He's, 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 he's a master craftsman. So uh, now to tell you the story about Wally, it took place in December in Minnesota at his home. He had a home studio before Paisley Park Studios was up and running. This would have been December of 86. And, um, he had this beautiful home studio, and he had just ended his engagement to Susanna Melvoin. Um, the, one of the reasons why the song Housequake uh, was, was so unhappy was he had just ended a relationship with the revolution. Wendy and Lisa and Bobby Z had just left. So, yeah, mm. it was rough. So anyway, it wasn't long after that that... Um, yeah, it wasn't long after that that um, he he broke it off with Susanna once and for all. And um, it was a Sunday, I seem to remember it was a Sunday, and he called me to the house and it was just the two of us. And uh, he either left me a note or he told me what he wanted, but he wanted his acoustic piano mic and he wanted acoustic drums and, you know, bass, of course, and some other instruments and his vocal mic. And systematically, one instrument at a time, we went through and we recorded the song that I had been waiting to hear ever since that breakup with Susanna. And that song was Wally. And it was sad. It was heart-wrenching. It was personal. He's expressing his vulnerability. I thought it was one of the most honest things I had ever heard him do. And it was, on top of that, it was beautiful. And I'm a Prince fan, so I was especially excited for people to hear this record because I was thinking, Oh, at last, he's finally stopped doing some of these happy dance songs, and he's finally doing the song that I knew was coming, which is, oh, this hurts, that kind of song. Finally, this is great. And, you know, a session like that would take you the whole day. So I remember it was early. The sun was just coming up, which in December in Minnesota would have been about 8 o'clock in the morning. The sun was just coming up. I mean, he just finished, and he had me put a rough mix of it on cassette. And then uh, and then he said to me, uh, okay, now erase it. And I, those words were just chilling. I didn't know what he meant. He meant put, and I asked him, what do you mean? And I remember him saying, put all 24 tracks in record and erase it. And I remember... Um, shaking my head and just saying, no, no, don't do it. And I, I do remember saying, I think you should sleep on it. Go upstairs and, and sleep, and, and if you still want me to do it, I'll come back. I'll come back to the studio, and, and I'll erase it. But I think you should think about this. And he said, if you don't, I will. And I said, I, I just don't think it's a very good idea. And I remember the, the remote for the tape machine was in between us, and I remember him reaching his arm over the remote and putting arming the tracks, putting all 24 tracks in record mode. He wasn't kidding. Yeah. And he erased it top to bottom. 
and took that cassette. Well, uh, a few days later, we did re-record that song. Same melody, same chord changes, same lyrics, totally different attitude. So on the original Wally, -E, he was expressing vulnerability and pain. On the remade Wally, -E, he was expressing confidence, braggadocio. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, she's gone, but yeah, I'll find another one. You know, it's it's her loss, not mm -hmm. mine. It wasn't the same attitude. It wasn't the honesty that had been there on the original Wally. -E. And it's called Wally, -E, correct? Mm -hmm. And he's saying, where'd you get those glasses? Yeah. So uh, Wally Stafford, the late Wally Stafford, he just passed away last year. Uh, Wally was a bodyguard and also served as a dancer on stage. Wally and Greg Brooks and Jerome Benton, the three of them. So Wally was a guy who looked out for him and Prince wrote this song and it opens with speech. He's pretending he's having a conversation with Wally. He says, Wally, where'd you get those glasses? Can I try them on? Um, because I'm going to a party tonight and I want to look so clean. And the music is playing underneath the background. And he says, still speaking, he says, uh, yeah, um, Wally, do you have a sister? Um, something like that. Do you have a sister and is she still fine? Yeah, see, uh, the woman I was with, uh, we broke up. And, and, and I want to meet somebody new. And then he goes into um, the song. So yeah, it was it was it was vulnerable initially, and when it was redone, it was no longer vulnerable. And I can't bear to listen to the new version of Wally because I think that was the wrong move. It was the right move for him personally. It's what he wanted to do. He didn't want others to hear him be vulnerable. He just didn't like sharing that part of himself. Um, so he liked the song, but he wasn't willing to use that treatment for for public release. So and so, why do you think he didn't just put it in the? Well, did the did the vault exist at this point? Because I know that you it was started being the built. vault. Yeah, it, it was, was being, being built. Well, uh, the the vault at Paisley Park was being built uh -huh. in December of 1986. So it was coming online. Uh, all of his tapes were stored in a vault, a type of vault at a uh, a secure store record storage facility in uh, Minneapolis. So why do you think he didn't just shelve that track? Did it mean something to him to express it and then have it not in existence anymore? I think so. I think he really didn't want anyone to hear it. Mm. And this is why I feel confident to this day saying that I think he'd approve of the posthumous releases that are coming out of the vault because I know damn good and well firsthand, if he didn't want you to hear it, he would have destroyed it. Mm. He was proud of the work that he did. He was proud. It might not be ready for public consumption to his ear, but he was proud of it. And this was something I can't say that the original Wally was something he wasn't proud of. It was just something he didn't want to share. And he ensured that it wouldn't be shared by erasing it. There's a weight that I'm feeling to this story after you told it. I don't have the words for it. So mm. his craft and beyond his craft, I think music and Prince, there's such a tight, like Prince was music, as far mm. as I'm concerned. He's so intimately tied with creating music, you know? Yeah. And we, members of the public, tend to think of our artists as, um, as people who 
well, we don't we don't think about them as as agents of their own of the curation of their own of their own art. In other words, we think that everything they do, as long as they've decided to be an artist and make some of their works public, that we think we have a right to enjoy all of the works that they've made. I have been so curious about what prompted what was the genesis of Paisley Park itself as an idea, you know, for him? Because mm. I think it's a really, it, it was built when he was still relatively young, right? That's, that's the kind of thing that you would imagine happens at the end of a very prolific person. Well, maybe not prolific, but, you know, like someone who's built the kind of legacy that he has. That's, that's something like a milestone, you know, thing. Yeah. Did you have, sorry, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, I think the impetus was entirely practical. So mm -hmm. when I joined him, we were rehearsing at a, at a warehouse in St. Louis Park, Minneapolis. This is a little suburb of Minneapolis. But, you know, you're renting these places. They're not ideal. Security's not, well, security's non-existent. And then I think we lost the lease or for one reason we got out of the St. Louis park place and we went to another rehearsal spot on flying cloud drive and then lost the lease on that and then we went to a third one and he he couldn't be dealing with that anymore and at this point uh, especially after purple rain fans were starting to kind of show up so he needed the security he needed a place of his own where he wouldn't lose the lease and so early on i think with the money from the success of purple rain he started planning let's build our own place now calling it paisley park i i don't know for sure but i think um around the time of the around the world in a day al album um he was dating susanna melvoin and uh, wendy and lisa were in his band and susanna and wendy and lisa all of them were turning him on to music that he hadn't known or really didn't know well prior like the beatles and a lot of stuff from the 60s the rolling stones and certainly Jimi hendrix and led zeppelin and stuff like that and i think the paisley theme which was so popular in the 1960s was just cool to him it was just cool so uh, I'm sure that the name Paisley Park came to him in a burst of inspiration and it stuck. It's a good name for the place. It is. It's a great name. <laughs> we haven't talked enough about you yet, which yeah. I always intended to do because your life is so, I think your life is very inspiring. Um, you. And, you know, if you can maybe give again for the, for the folks who are listening, your origin story, where do you come from? And then your trajectory into the music industry, because you've basically been working in the music industry your whole working life. Hmm. Yeah. I'm from Southern California, mm -hmm. Anaheim, California, to be precise. I was born in 1956, lower middle class family. My dad was an exterminator, pest control. And uh, my mom was uh, a housewife for, for, for the most part, but my mother had poor health. So after many, many years of battling cancer, she passed away when I was 14. I'm the oldest uh, and I'm the only girl in my family. I have three younger brothers, which ended up being really uh, useful preparation for the music business <laughs> for working with, with mostly men. I'm comfortable with them. I've got a lot of brothers. So yeah, I, I, I grew up um, like most kids. We didn't have a lot of money. 
but it was a good family, people who had good values and we took care of one another. That, that was the only strife in our family. Like there, there wasn't any other strife other than my mother's illness, uh, which is just something that happens in this life. Anyway, uh, as a child, I was um, just crazy about music. Still am to this day, but all my fantasies and my spare time and any little babysitting money or birthday money I had, I might have, I would spend on records um, because I just was crazy about it. And and I kind of knew, I said earlier in our conversation that I believe that children know who they are. And I loved music, but the thought of being a musician or a songwriter or a performer on stage, it didn't feel right to me at all. It just, it held zero attraction. However, the thought of contributing in some way to those artists who are making records, that felt very exciting to me at a very young age, eight, nine, 10 years old. Hmm. I think I was born to be a record maker because um, it was just kind of a natural fit for me. It's not something I fell into. It was a, a light on the inside that I, that I followed. Um, I, uh, after my mother passed away, uh, it was very difficult for my family. It was was, was really difficult uh, for, for many reasons. And it was kind of every man for himself. College was absolutely not an option. Uh, there, were, there were no professional people in my family and no one with a higher education. So that wasn't going to happen. So when I was 17, I dropped out of high school, just quit, just walked away and got married to a, a guy who was uh, four years older than me. I was 17. He was 21. And then we got married, and that ended up being um, out of the frying pan and into the fire because uh, he 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 was a really terrible person, really terrible, and uh, used to be really jealous of my my love for music, especially. I mean, just raging jealous of it. So when I was twenty one myself, after four years of this terrible marriage, I managed to escape, which is the appropriate word. And then uh, I moved with a girlfriend, a friend to Hollywood and started my career and I must say my life in 1978. Now I'm 21 years old and my life is now mine and it belongs just to me and I'm going to make something out of out of it and I, I'm going to I'm going to contribute to records in whatever way I can. I never dreamed that I could be an engineer or God forbid a producer because there, there were no women. We just you just didn't see any women's names back in those days. But I knew there was something I could do and be good at and like and that was I can study I, I like I like studying and 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 I like learning and, and I like technology and I like mechanics um, just got a feel for it so I studied electronics and I became an audio technician and there I was I was a young woman in my 20s in Hollywood repairing studio consoles and tape machines so that's when the call came through the professional grapevine that Prince was looking for a technician and there you go I mean that was that was my dream job. He was my favorite artist in the world. He wanted a technician. I was a technician. He liked working with women. I was one. And um, I was I was the perfect fit. That, that's what I'm saying. You know, you're, it, it's like, it's almost like destiny. Yeah, yeah. I got, I got very, very fortunate because I teach students now who want to have careers themselves. There's a lot of thinking that needs to go into this, this career path, if 
you weren't so fortunate as to have fortune find you. So there's always strategy involved. And I think of um, the two things that I had going that allowed fortune to find me is one, I knew what I wanted, and two, I knew who I was. So I think your best chance of success are when you can take the raw material of who you are, here's my skills and abilities, here's how I think, here's where my natural abilities lie, this is who I am, and you can find the overlap in the Venn diagram of who you are with what you want, then the odds are good that things will work out for you. What I am is a, a person who likes the technical stuff, that's why I'm a neuroscientist today, I love that. Mm. More than anything, it's my favorite thing. Uh, I like the technical stuff, and what I wanted was to contribute to records being made. There's a place for a person who wants that. There's a place, and it doesn't matter if you're female in a male-dominated environment. We want you. You're a good fit. You're not going to change your mind. You're going to stick with it, uh, as, as in one way or another I've done. What I occasionally see with students is they often have big dreams and desires and wants that aren't in alignment with their uh, w what appears to be their their natural um, or their unnatural their their abilities, um, and that that there's a separation in that Venn diagram there, and then that, that I think they're going to struggle harder. Do you see there being a way to bridge to create that overlap, or if you were yeah. to, yeah. Yeah, I think the best way is um, know yourself. Mm. And the best way to know yourself is to spend time with yourself. We are, I just heard this described the other day, that young people today are tied to the railroad tracks by social media. Tied by social media. And there's this... 200 mile an hour mental crisis train headed right toward them. We do need to get away from the social media and from screens on occasion and spend time just activating our default network, which is a brain network that's where you go when you go into your own head, and let your brain show you who you are and tell you what you want. It'll tell you what you want because it'll show you what your fantasies are. My fantasies always involved some sort of recording studio or being around musicians, not being one myself. That's how I knew who I was. I, you know, I wouldn't have been good at music business. I wouldn't have been a good manager. I wouldn't have been a good record executive. But I knew technical stuff, I'm your girl. Put me on that and that I could do. So I don't know. It's just, I think it does come from your daydreaming and your fantasies and, and knowing yourself and not comparing yourself to everyone else who's out there. Goodness, if I would compared myself to every technician who was out there, I never would have taken a step out the door because all the technicians were men. They didn't look anything like me. And the vast majority of them had gone to college and they had an education, a formal education in electronics engineering, uh, which I didn't have. So I didn't fit the bill at all. Mm. But I had raw ability and I had, I had desire. And you had the awareness of that. You had the awareness that you had that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, from self-examination, you know, just spending time with myself, long walks and daydreaming. And daydreaming is very undervalued, uh, yeah. very undervalued. It's very, it's very important for us. 
Yeah, you talk about that in your book. I think it's in the final chapter. Um, and what I learned from hearing you talk about it was, okay, you know, it was a bit of comfort because I'm kind of, a, you know, a daydreamer myself. <laughs> Very much so. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I wish like I could, because again, with the social media, with the work, with being an adult and sometimes listening too much to those outer voices you can forget or disconnect from that inner child or that inner essence which is mm -hmm. i think most potent when you're a child as, oh, yeah. as you said now i mentioned creativity the neuroscience of creativity is showing us that creativity is the kind of the end result of spontaneous thought spontaneous thought is what happens when you go into your own head and you let yourself think whatever you want to think it happens when we're dreaming of course that's spontaneous thought because you can't control it it just your brain goes wherever it's gonna go and sometimes it goes to really weird places but when you're awake and it says oh maybe says i'm bored right now or i don't know what to think or i've got a problem that i know is kind of simmering under there i should think about that problem and you go into your own head that private place that only you know you're just playing really i mean you're just letting different patterns of neural activation act themselves out so you're imagining different futures what if I called him? What if instead of calling him, I just texted him? What if I got up extra early tomorrow morning and I did this and I did that? And there's your brain spontaneously wandering around different scenarios. And as it's doing this wandering around, it might just hit upon a good idea. And it might just say, yes, yes, that is good. I want that. I need that. And then you're going to move from spontaneous thought to goal-directed thought. You're going to, if you're a writer, you're going to grab that, that laptop or you're going to grab that pencil and paper. You're going to do whatever it is you need to do. You're going to grab that guitar, sit at that keyboard, and you're going to make that germ come to life. You're going to, you're going to build something. You're going to make something. So yeah, that's the neuroscience of, of the default network in very, uh, loose terms but going into our own heads daydreaming and mind wandering mm -hmm. give birth to creative thought you can bet you can bet that steve jobs of, of apple computer was a hell of a mind wanderer you can bet that anyone who is a great artist or inventor is a mind wanderer mm. so it's safe to say that prince was a mind wanderer Oh, he must have been. Yeah. He must have been. Now, there are some people, it's very rare, but there are some people who are what neuroscience identifies as being a hyper-creative. And they actually have impaired, a couple of impaired circuits in the right hemisphere. Not in the default network, but in circuits that communicate with the default network. And by impaired, I mean they lack the breaks, the inhibition that most of us have. And what that means is their creative ideas just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, um, ide they have ideational fluency and they're very flexible in their thinking. So the ideas keep coming and if they hit a stumbling block or a problem that's unsolvable or something isn't working out, they're flexible. They have many, many ways of going around it. Mm -hmm. 
That's that's hyper creativity. I think I've only known two. I've only actually seen or been in the room with two people who've exhibited hyper creativity my whole time in the music business. And one was Prince. What are you most proud of in your work with him? Most proud of? I suppose um, the things that I mentioned earlier is a capacity to read him and be as close as I could manage, be what he needed. Um, to be selfless, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. To be selfless, to not be thinking about myself and what I needed or what was in it for me. Because he had people in his employ who were looking out very heavily for what was in it for them. And um, mm. and that caused him some difficulty. I never did. I, I'm proud of the fact that when I left him, I never took anything from him that didn't belong to me. There were people who worked for him, who stole from him, who took personal things. And not, not, not the people whose names we've mentioned, not the good people, but there, there were some people who just would take whatever they could get. And I'm very proud that I was never even tempted. I, I, I knew what I was there to do and I did it and I did it as well as I could. So I'm, I'm proud that I made those choices and, and behaved that way in his employ. Mm, okay. <laughs> Thank you for these wonderful questions. You're you're so good at this. I've been interviewed about him so many times, and I love that you ask questions I've never been asked before, and even got some old information, but through a new way of asking about it. And um, I appreciate you um, for that. Thank you very much. I appreciate you, Susan. Thank you for indulging me <laughs> with your time, yeah. and. Uh, and your knowledge and it's such an honor to speak with you thank you it's nice speaking with you and good luck with this i you know his birthday's coming up this week i hope it goes well yeah thank you thank you likewise thank and you. thank you so much for for everything that you've done it's been a big part of of my um of just some very important moments in my life thank and you. and um you know i wouldn't be here i think without a lot of that music well, thank so, you. Not yeah. at all. And the, the pleasure was all mine uh, and the privilege. I was, I've been pretty mm. lucky in this world. <laughs>